Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Alex Johnson, and I'm the author of Menus That Made History, uh, 2,000 Years of Menus, From Ancient Egyptian Food for the Afterlife to Elvis Presley's Wedding Breakfast, uh, which I co-wrote with my friend uh, Vincent Franklin. For more cookery by the book, you can follow me on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share it with a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy cookery by the book. On with the show. So you and Vincent Franklin delved into the world's 100 most iconic menus, which reveal not just the story of food, but periods of history, famous works of literature, notable events, and celebrity figures from prehistoric times up to the modern day. With over 40,000 years to choose from, how did you whittle down the menus? Uh, Well, yes, it's quite difficult, really. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches, as you say. But what we were really trying to do was pick menus that tell stories. So um, I'm a journalist by training, and Vince is an actor. So we're both very interested in the kind of storytelling aspect uh, as, as much as the food element. What we didn't want to do was fill it with feasts um, that were kind of, you know, ten a penny, although things like the, the George IV coronation is, is astonishing just because of the vast amount of food that was on offer. We also wanted to make it international, we didn't want to make it, although we're, we're both based in England, we didn't want it to just be an English uh, book of menus. So there's things from India and America and Australia, um, South America, all, all, all over the world. And really, it's the kind of intriguing tidbits that you want to use to astonish people in the pub or in the bar uh, and just something to, to chat about, really. So each menu provides an insight into its historical moment. You're a longtime journalist, and you've written eight books that range from books and reading to sheds. So yeah. what was it about historical menus that caught your interest? Uh, well, I'd, I'd like to be able to claim uh, the idea was mine, but actually it was Vince's. Um, I'd, I'd written a book two or three years ago called A Book of Book Lists, and that was a list of um, things not like uh, 50 books you have to read before you're 30 or anything like that, but more lists that told stories. So things like uh, what was on Osama Ben Laden's bookshelf, that kind of thing, with little mini essays. Um, Vince read it and he liked it. And uh, we were at a party and he said, well, you know what would also work very well as lists, the ultimate lists, uh, menus. Um, and I think he said it partly as a joke. And he said, uh, well, you know, what do you think about that as an idea? And I said, actually, that's a cracking idea. And it really went from there. We both like food. We both know each other very well. Uh, We play snooker together every week. Our children were at school together. So uh, the idea of working together was uh, was, uh, very um, pleasant. I saw that you play snooker. It's snooker or snooker? Snooker, definitely snooker. Yes. <laughs> so it's like pool, right? Uh, it, it is. It is like pool in a way, but the, the table's much bigger, um, and uh, it's. Uh, I mean, the table's you know two or three times the size, and so the the game's gone much longer. So yes, it, it's similar, and there's some crossover. I mean, the the best player in the world, Ronnie O'Sullivan, also plays a bit of pool. I think he's played pool in America as well, but. Um, uh, uh, yes, we, we only play snooker. We're, we're very hoity-toity about pool. <laughs> so the word menu itself 
comes from a French term indicating something small or detailed. Talk a bit about where you found the first menu in ancient history. The, the earliest ones go back kind of 30,000, 40,000 years um, to, uh, to, to Ice Age people. And we also have early ones from um, early Roman and, and Greek history. They're not, in a sense, some of these aren't menus. They've, they've had to be put together um, from um, bits and bobs from what people have discovered uh, and, and our research. Um, but I think they, we always felt they still counted as menus because that was part of the, the actual diet. You wrote that this is not really a book about food. What does that mean? Yes, that sounds rather an odd statement, doesn't it, when you're writing a book about food? Uh, but yes, it's not so much the um, the individual elements of it, I suppose. It, it's going back to what I said earlier about the idea of, of telling stories, the idea that we are what we eat. Um, so rather than just um, recipes, uh, although we do have recipes in the book, or just talking about individual items of food, which we do as well, uh, it's all. It's more about the story. So, for example, the um, Captain Scott failing to get to the South Pole first was partly, largely, because he wasn't as good a planner as Amundsen. He just wasn't as good at planning everything. And that's reflected in his food choices. He didn't have enough fat or calories um, in what he, he ate and in what his men ate, um, down to smaller things like all his men had white bread, whereas Amundsen had special brown bread made. It, it's those kind of stories... Um, as well as the food element. So it's how the, the food reflects the times and reflects the people. It would have been easy to just write a book of a collection of recipes, but you categorize them into 11 chapters. Tell us about that. When We're not professional cooks, either of us, so um, just putting recipes together wouldn't, wouldn't have worked so well. And we did, yes, we, they're um, in 11 chapters, so things like Travel and Adventure, War and Peace, Faith and Belief, and that was really we did we did think about just going straight through all the all the menus, but we felt that cutting it up into um, chapters where they naturally fitted into anyway makes it easier to dip in and out of. It's not really a book that's meant to be read straight through. It's very much something you can pick up, read for a bit, and, and put down again once you've marvelled at the stories. Although I did read straight through. <laughs> yeah, quite You're right. welcome. That's what I should have said. It's meant to be read straight through. Some of the menus are linked to an unforgettable event like the Titanic. Describe the distinction between the three classes on the menu. Well, one of the main distinctions is actually the the wording in them. So um, they're quite social distinctions. So things like dinner, tea and lunch um, are, are different depending on your class, which is something still very true today. I mean, in England... Um, supper, for example, could be um, your kind of final meal of the day, um, or it could just be um, like a little sandwich before you go to bed, um, depending on uh, your, your social class. So in, in actual kind of physical terms, what you've got in first class um, is obviously the finest things. You've got, you've got your oysters, whereas in third class, you're, you're down to gruel and um, what they describe as cabin biscuits, and cabin biscuits sounds not too bad, but actually that's what's known as hard tacks, which are made out of flour and water and salt, and a little bit of fat, which is great in terms of lasting. I mean, they last donkey's years, uh, and they've been used on, on boats for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, but, um, you know, not, not the most delicious thing around. And even the times, uh, the dining times were different. 
Yes, I mean it's 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 all very different. I mean it's uh, it, it shows you what a what a massive operation it is and and um, how everything was very stratified on board the boat. Third class was the only menu that gives instructions on how to complain about the food or service. Yeah, it's it's strange that that we we. Uh, we we looked at that and we we kind of researched it. We couldn't see any particular reason why they. It's very specific on the on the um, on the third class menu. I, I suppose it's probably uh, an element of being patronising. You know, the first and second class they thought knew how to complain, um, and maybe um, the, the food was just absolutely terrible in third class. So they were more likely to complain, um, or maybe it was just that they wanted to suggest to to the people in third class that it was best to complain rather than go absolutely balmy and start wrecking the place. It's so odd to think that the Titanic had a high-capacity cooling unit for ice, but I guess it kept the oysters fresh for the first class? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the beauty of, of the book is that um, things like uh, that, which are quite ironic, um, which we didn't know. I mean, we, we were both reasonably familiar with the Titanic menus, but once you actually delve into it, they're the little tidbits, as I mentioned earlier, that, that, that come out. You just think, blimey, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a bit strange, really. So even today, restaurants are recreating the first-class Titanic meal. Have you ever had one of those? Uh, I haven't, no. I mean, it, it's interesting, though. A lot of these meals have become quite iconic. So we also include the meal from um, Babette's Feast, from the film in there, and uh, in the Independence Day meals from India. And uh, there's there's a lot of this uh, recreation. I was talking to somebody um, early today, in fact, who's um, who runs dinner clubs, and he was looking to do a Babette's feast, uh, and also the Titanic one. I think it's uh, they're, they're very popular. I think you also get the same kind of thing with um, Lord of the Rings um, fanatics as well. That uh, you know they're very keen to actually reproduce what they see on screen. July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine. Four bacon squares, peaches, three sugar cookies, pineapple grapefruit drink, and coffee. That was the first menu on the moon. Who ate this, and how was this menu chosen? Well, the, the, these are the astronauts who are, who are the, the, the first first men on the moon. People like Neil Armstrong had it. I mean, Buzz Aldrin. Neil Armstrong's actual favourite from all their food was spaghetti with meat sauce, uh, followed by pineapple fruitcake. And uh, Buzz Aldrin liked the shrimp cocktail. And generally, it's interesting what what food's been popular in space. Bacon is uh, very popular for a long time, I think partly because of its strong flavour. But also there's some doubt about whether this was the first menu on the moon because uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, had actually brought a uh, communion wafer from communion wine and celebrated a little private communion before that meal. So there's probably two answers to that question if you ever get it in a quiz. Oh, I bet that communion wafer was as awful in space. It's so dry. <laughs> it's gone a long way. It's gone a long way. King George VI was the first reigning British monarch to visit America in June 1939. President Franklin Roosevelt hosted the king and queen at their private home in Hyde Park, New York. So instead of a ceremonial banquet, they had sort of a buffet situation. The New York Times wrote, King tries hot dogs and asks for more, and he drinks beer with them. This made me laugh. So describe <laughs> this menu. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a very kind of down-to-earth, no-nonsense 
straightforward American food menu. You've got um, Virginia ham and hot dogs and cranberry sauce, cranberry jelly, I think, and um, then coffee, beer. It, it's all, it's all there's, there's nothing fancy pantsy about it at all. Very good no-nonsense stuff. The Queen was unsure how to eat a hot dog with a fork and knife, and FDR said, and I quote, push it into your mouth and keep pushing it until it is all gone. <laughs> Yeah, yes, it's nuts. Maybe not what you would recommend today, especially uh, in the days of uh, YouTube and videos. That would be that would be quite a sight, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, why do you think they chose such an informal setting for the king and queen? Well, the whole thing really um, was designed as a kind of cover for Roosevelt um, to align the U.S. more closely with Britain um, as they were heading towards war. Um, and there was a strong isolationist lobby at the time in the U.S. So. He, he, like I say, he wanted a kind of um, slight, not exactly incognito, but a, but a cover story. And and his um, argument, really, what he wanted to do was key to show that the royal family were the kind of approachable people you could do business with, you know, the kind of people you'd uh, have a beer with. I suppose you'd describe it maybe as gastro diplomacy, um, which we mention in a couple of other places in the book. For example, the um, the historic peace summit between North and South Korea in 2018. And there's a huge amount of symbolism in all aspects of that. So especially things like fillings, um, which came from the hometowns of former presidents and that kind of thing. Everything is very carefully sorted out and worked out to make it look like actually it's very relaxed. It's a very clever piece of work by Roosevelt, really. What is your favorite menu in the book? I really like the um, the one for the 1870 um, Siege of Paris on Christmas Day. Uh, the Prussian army had been besieging the city for a while, and they were getting really low on food. They were they'd eaten all the normal food. They'd eaten a lot of the animals. Uh, pretty much all the dogs had gone. And um, on Christmas Day, one of the big restaurants, Wazin, wanted to serve something special. So essentially what they did was they went to the zoo and um, started um, taking the animals out and serving them. No. So, yeah, it was uh, remarkable. I don't know what it, so you have on the menu, you have things like um, stuffed donkey head, elephant soup, um, cat fringed with rats. Uh, but they went for everything. What they didn't go for, didn't go for monkeys because uh, that's a bit too kind of close to home, a bit too much like cannibalism. Uh, they don't get for anything too dangerous, like the lions or the tigers. And there were some things like the hippos that they didn't know what to do with. I mean, you know, how, how do you cook a hippo? How do you serve that? So, um, but that that seemed remarkable to me. Uh, it was again one of those things that I've that I've just not heard of until you start doing the research for, and you, you think oh, that's, that's, that's extraordinary, really. I must talk about Elvis and Priscilla Presley's wedding breakfast at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas on May first, nineteen sixty-seven. The ceremony lasted only eight minutes, with 14 guests and a buffet lunch for 100 guests. That menu was ham and eggs, fried chicken, oysters Rockefeller, uh, roast pig, poached and candied salmon, lobster, eggs minette, no idea what that is, a six-tiered <laughs> wedding cake, and champagne. You wrote that Elvis only liked ham, eggs, and fried chicken. Was this wedding a publicity stunt? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is all down to his um, his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. I mean, it was a it was a very, as you mentioned, a very very swift wedding. Um, there were hardly any guests. 
In fact, even the ones that um, Elvis had invited personally weren't allowed in. And he didn't like a lot of the food there, he, uh, especially the, the, the oyster and the lobster. A lot of a lot of the, their business associates were invited. It was all it was all a bit uh, like, like a lot of things that Tom Parker did. Uh, very very much a stunt. I'm, I'm sure Parker actually you know sorted out the menu himself and picked it. So last weekend, I made the recipe for buttermilk fried chicken with apple slaw from Elvis's wedding buffet. <laughs> it, it was pretty darn delicious. And might I add that there are recipes throughout this book. Talk a little bit about that. When we sat down to to write it, we were very much looking at the, the, the history of the recipes. And when we were talking to the publisher, they felt that it would be nice to also include uh, some recipes as well as the menus. And they asked us for suggestions. And uh, the ones we came up with were all the absolutely uh, ludicrous ones like you know roast narwhal or um, stuffed swan's neck um, and they picked ones that people were a bit more approachable really uh, and it was all done in-house there's about a dozen where people can can read about the um, the menu and then make something quite easily from it well, I hope it was quite easy. How, how did the, how was it, you said it was, it was tasty. Was it quite easy to follow? It was really easy to follow. You just, uh, you know, marinate the chicken. I did mm. it overnight. It was, it was really good. And the apple slaw was great too. I'm sure Elvis would have loved it. <laughs> Let's hope so. Wait, I need to get back to stuff swan's neck. We did some of the Tudor Elizabethan um, recipes, um, which included peacocks uh, and things that are, are just not really available anymore, and a 13th century um, funeral for a bishop as well. Um, so that was interesting, looking into the, just the different names and, and what they're eating at uh, different times. Yikes almighty. So yeah. <laughs> now, now for my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. What's your all-time favorite cookbook and why? I really like... Um, there's a chap here called Hugh Fernley Whittingstall who um, has written lots of cookbooks and he's a big campaigner for ethical eating and healthy eating. He's in a series called the River Cottage Cookbooks and there's a very good family one which has recipes in which is good for children, uh, cooking with children. Well, not, you know, with them. Uh, and um, <laughs> uh, Gary Rhodes was probably, who's sadly died um, uh, at the end of last year, um, was it was a marvelous cook he did one called roads around britain uh which is probably the about the first cookbook i bought um as an adult um which is a lot of fairly classic british dishes um but with a slight twist he has a very very good bread and butter pudding recipe in there but i would have to say that probably um my favorite is the delia smith's complete cookery course delia smith's a real dawn of um uh, of cooks and somebody of my age, I'm, I'm 50, um, she used to have a slot on a children's television show on Saturday mornings when I was about eight or nine. And I've kind of grown up with her. She had lots of um, television series and produced lots of cookbooks. And they're all very good, safe recipes. So if there's anything you really want to do, they're not fancy recipes. They're, they're nice and tasty, but they're really reliable and I think, I think that's the one that I, I go back to the most. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Uh, well, the, um, the book, you can find the book. We're on, we're on Twitter um, at Famous Menus. Um, personally, my website is uh, thealexjohnson.co.uk. And on Twitter, I'm um, shedworking because one of the other things I do a lot of writing about is sheds. Um, yeah, Vince is just all over the place because he's an actor. 
type in his name, you'll find all sorts of him everywhere. So, sheds. Are you talking about <laughs> tiny houses or are really sheds that you put your gardening tools in? Uh, it's somewhere in between, really. So, these, what I write about is um, garden offices. So, the kind of sheds that you have in your backyard, your back garden, that you use as, as a home office, which is a, a slight distance away from your home, but still very close. Um, and uh, yes, that's the one of the things I've been writing about now for about 10, 15 years. Have you heard of the term she shed? Oh, absolutely, yes. No big <laughs> thing, um, especially the last kind of five or six years. It's uh, it's it shows. It's, that's the nice thing about shed working garden offices is that the old traditional idea of sheds, um, especially in in the UK, has been that it's for kind of uh, older men on their allotments and uh, no women allowed kind of thing. But shed working garden offices is very much a, um, a kind of uh, equal gender approach. So uh, it's fantastic that I can I get to write about lots of, of women who are interested in sheds and, and garden offices too. Hillary Clinton once remarked, food is the oldest diplomatic tool. Well, isn't that the truth? Thanks so much for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Lovely. Thank you very much, Susie. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.